It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. I want to start off by wishing everybody a happy Passover if you celebrate it. And again, uh, an unusual one, uh, similar to in a way last year because of COVID. Uh, you know, in my family, we had a Zoom uh, meeting with uh, people in California and people in Toronto. And uh, it was, you know, a, a nice way, in a sense, to get family together who normally would not travel all the way to get together. So. You know, that was the good part. Um, the bad part, obviously, is not seeing everyone in person. Um, this week also uh, marks the first week of spring, which started uh, March 21st. So actually, it's, we're into the second week. But I did read something interesting, very interesting uh, today, which is that the uh, cherry blossoms uh, bloomed this week in Kyoto. And uh, they have continuous records of uh, cherry blossoms only last for a few days. So, um, you know, they begin and they last maybe four days and they're gone. That's why the, um, the blossoming in Japan is considered such a great spring holiday. And everyone goes out to see them because they don't last very long. Well, they have continuous records of when the very first day of the cherry blossoms uh, are or were in uh, Kyoto going all the way back, believe it or not, to 812 AD. So uh, uh, we're talking now at least 1200 uh, plus years. And this year, 2021, is the earliest that the cherry blossoms have ever bloomed since 812 AD. So it obviously tells you something. Uh, has changed, you know, as we all know. But if people want confirmation um, of the uh, record of climate change, uh, you know, if people want uh, confirmation that there is such a thing as climate change, you know, certainly records going back to 812 would be a good proof of, um, you know, something different is going on. So, um, you know, just to mention that. I have uh, two subjects that I wanted to discuss today, uh, one of which is kind of a continuation of a previous one, which is to, to take a quick uh, look back at the um, Israeli election results, because we were talking about the elections and uh, now we have the results. And my second subject is going to be about Brazil, because uh, today... Um, Today in Brazil, uh, the ma major uh, government officials resigned. Uh, Brazil has been named the official worst COVID country in the world uh, right now. And um, it's an important country that we don't get a chance to speak about very often. And considering their status as uh, the number two country in the world for deaths of COVID, and, um, you know, uh, the uh, in turmoil that's going on in the government there, it's worthwhile to have a nice, quick uh, look at the country, what it's all about, uh, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, hopefully to get to know it a bit better. 
So um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, we'll start, I think, with the Israeli election results. Uh, some of you who uh, are listeners are quite uh, big fans of politics, and uh, certainly Israel has uh, politics in spades. In fact, uh, the country is a, a continuous political kind of um, struggle because um, everything is seen through the lens of politics. Even things that are not political get a political infusion to it. So, you know, uh, as we said before, this was the fourth election in two years. And by and large, the results were more or less the same as the past three elections. Meaning that although the players change a little bit, the basic structure of the lineup of Israeli politics hasn't changed. And it would be very difficult for um, either the opposition or the leadership to form uh, any kind of government, let alone a stable and strong government. So stable and strong government is completely out of the question. Being able to form any government, meaning to get more than half of the members of the Knesset to back a prime minister in a vote of confidence, you know, right now that looks like a long shot. But as I've said before, Israeli politics, uh, uh, Israeli elections take place in two stages. Stage number one is the actual vote and the counting of the vote, obviously. Stage number two is the, the attempted assembly of a government after the vote. So once the vote is counted, the number of seats don't change. But considering that, of course, Israel is a, um, uh, is a proportional representation country, and in this election, 13 different parties were elected out of 37 different parties running, but 13 were actually got seats. Last election, nine got seats, and they still couldn't make a majority government uh, very easily. So this time, it's not going to be any easier for either Mr. Netanyahu or his opponents to make a government. The turnout in this election was 67%, which is not that much lower than the 72% in the last election. So um, there, was a, there was a downturn in, in turnout. Um, interestingly enough, that downturn was more predominant among the Arab Israelis than Jewish Israelis. Uh, but, and the turnout, of ultra-Orthodox Jews was much higher. Uh, in other words, their turnout did not drop compared to the rest of the uh, Jewish population. So those are two facts about the turnouts. Um, and as I said, uh, there were surprises compared to the pre-election polling. There were some winners and losers. Um, overall, the anti-Netanyahu bloc did a little bit better than expected. So Mr. Netanyahu's party, Likud, went down from 36 seats to 30 seats, meaning he lost um, uh, one-sixth of the vote, which came to about almost 300,000 votes. Fewer people voted for Netanyahu than last time. Um, and though the, those excess votes got scattered around to other political parties, uh, all of them on the right wing of Israeli politics. Um, but the Likud with their 30 seats was the biggest uh, vote getter by far. The second biggest party, the sort of chief opposition, 
the Yesh Atid party led by Mr. Lapid only got 17 seats. There's quite a gap in that way. The last time around, um, the gap was 36 to 33. So it was a much closer uh, result. Uh, the 30 seats that Mr. Netanyahu got are halfway in between the sort of polling range of 28 to 32 that came out during uh, various times before the polls. Mr. Netanyahu, as you know, has been prime minister since 2009. So uh, in, in terms of longevity, he's the champion of uh, Israeli prime ministers uh, at this point by quite a ways. Um, and um, last time he stayed in power by, by convincing the number two party to join him. Uh, the number two party broke exactly in half and half joined him and half didn't. And uh, the deal was that uh, Mr. Gantz and uh, Mr. Netanyahu would rotate leadership of the country. Mr. Netanyahu would go first and Mr. Gantz would go second after 18 months. Uh, most Israeli politicians didn't believe that this would ever happen, and they were right. Um, Mr. Netanyahu had no intention of ever giving up power, and um, his government simply refused to pass a budget, meaning that the government could not continue, um, you know, and then, of course, uh, elections have to be held after that. So um, Mr. Netanyahu bet that the Israeli populace would be uh, disappointed in Mr. Gantz, wouldn't elect Mr. Gantz again, and that Mr. Netanyahu would get even more votes. Uh, but of course, that didn't happen. Uh, he was half right. Mr. Gantz's support went down uh, from somewhere around, we'll call it 16 seats or 17 seats to, to eight which is a big drop, but polls were saying that he might not even make it to four. He might even not even make it past the minimum threshold. So he did surprise in the sense and coming up in the end to eight. Um, but, you know, the other votes went to other parties and not to Mr. Netanyahu. Um, so, uh, you know, in a way, he did a little bit better than it was expected at the very end. Um, the, the big loser, the big disappointment was Mr. Saar, who was a, a very Likud a minister, a strong backer of Likud in the party for a long time. Uh, he ran against Netanyahu for the leadership of the party, saying Netanyahu is just too involved in, in his criminal cases. He's been in party in power for too long. Uh, he sees the state as kind of himself. Um, and it's time for a change. Mr. Netanyahu is about 74 years old. And Mr. Saar said, you know, um, if, if uh, Mr. Netanyahu won't quit on his own, I will break away and form my own party and run in the elections. So when he did that, the polls were showing that he would get somewhere around 20, 21 seats, which is a huge number. Um, and similarly, that the Likud would drop to also in the low 20s. But in the end, uh, kind of that novelty wore off and Mr. Saar managed to get only six seats, which is uh, a lot less than he was expecting or hoping. So that's kind of, in a way, the big disappointment for him. Um, Mr. Netanyahu certainly had things going for him. He had the, the uh, world's greatest um, uh, achievement in COVID vaccinations by far. 
uh, the lockdowns had come to an end because of this high vaccination rate. He had the peace agreement with um, and recognition from the four Arab states, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, which is a major achievement that he did. Um, you know, he was able to, re to pre-order vaccines because of his agreement to um, participate in trials for these vaccines. Um, and, uh, you know, he, um, he, he uh, was able also to sort of keep up the drums of war against Iran by attacking uh, Iranian facilities in Syria. Um, and so in a certain sense, Israel has had uh, a great amount of stability on the outside of the country. And I would say, um, you know, considering COVID, uh, and uh, aside from COVID, there haven't been any huge uprisings uh, among the civil population uh, complaining about all kinds of different things, which they, you know, easily could have. So, uh, you know, he had things going for him. Uh, and his party is certainly the best funded, the most organized, and the most widespread in the country. Uh, and yet his score in the end of 30 seats is just kind of mediocre. Remember, there's 120 seats in the Knesset, so 30 out of 120 means that three-quarters of the Israeli population voted against him. Um, he also had the media on his side. Uh, and uh, what's interesting this time is that he appealed to the Arab population of Israel, which were 21%, uh, who he had denigrated uh, constantly, whose party always considers them to be kind of outsiders and, and, and traitors and potential traitors, and as not real citizens. Um, you know, this Israeli Arab population uh, has lived in a certain sense with second class status since the founding of the state and, and kind of it's understandable since, uh, you know, their very close relatives and cousins live in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. And, um, you know, there's always this fear that uh, in the end of end of things, this Palestinian population would like to displace the Jewish population. So this is kind of a uh, kind of a... Uh, you know, a, a fact of life in Israeli politics. But this time, for the first time, uh, the Likud party put up election posters in Arab towns. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu went to Arab towns to campaign. Uh, he nominated a Muslim candidate not high on the list of Likud, um, uh, Likud uh, members, but reasonably high, number 37. So he didn't get elected since the first 30 got elected. Um, but uh, he was um, trying, in a way, to pull votes away from the uh, what was before the joint list uh, over to himself, understanding that you can't ignore 21% of the voters uh, in Israel. Um, of course, uh, uh, he was partly successful in this uh, attempt. The joint list party uh, went from 15 seats last time, their all-time high, to six seats this time. But there was a split which Mr. Netanyahu engineered of the southern uh, of the Islamic um, uh, party based in South Israel, uh, also representing the Bedouins. And this party split off, and Mr. Netanyahu was hoping that they would end up under the 
under the threshold and not get elected altogether. And the big surprise was they did get elected with four members. Um, so of the, the four parties which made up the joint list in the previous election, one of them split off and got four seats. The other three together got six seats. So that's certainly a disappointment for them. And uh, the reason for that simply is that the Arab voters did not show up in the same numbers that they did in the previous election because of the uh, split up in the parties representing their interests in, in some way. And in another way, because uh, some of them voted for the, um, we'll call them the Jewish-based parties uh, who uh, had put um, several uh, uh, Arab um, candidates on their list and several of them were actually elected uh, in this election on the lists of the Jewish uh, parties. Um, the, his other success, uh, Mr. Netanyahu's, was to get the uh, union of the Jewish Home Party and the Jewish Power Party together, along with an anti-gay party called Noam. So these three parties together ran uh, in the last election, um, the Jewish Power Party, which represents the most uh, uh, anti-Arab, uh, pro, um, uh, I would say, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, the followers of Rabbi Kahana who want the Arabs out of Israel to expel them. Uh, this party ran on its own and couldn't get any members elected last time. This time they joined up together with the Jewish Home Party, representing the settlers and re representing modern Orthodox. And together with the anti-gay party, they actually got six seats, which is quite a lot. And uh, one of the members of the Jewish Power Party, Mr. Ben Gavir, was uh, elected on this list. And, um, you know, he is an out-and-out -out racist. And it's hard to, one of the difficulties will be for Mr. Netanyahu, he, he will certainly want that party in his, um, in his government. But many governments, uh, including the United States and Canada, would not want to deal with um, uh, somebody who is an avowed racist. So it may be somehow that this man doesn't enter the government or that the, the parties sl split apart once the Knesset is formed. Something around those lines is going to happen. Um, the Labour Party also came up from uh, sort of nowhere, in a sense, to get seven members. So that was quite a success for them because they were declared to be dead by the pundits and they managed to, under new leadership of uh, Ms. Mrs. Mikhaili, to, um, to uh, get seven seats, which is quite a good accomplishment. So all in all, then, um, you know, uh, if you add up the blocks, the Likud uh, and its religious supporters have 52. Uh, the anti-Netanyahu forces have 57. Well, neither of them have 61. Uh, the sort of uh, undecided un, um, ones would be the Yamina party led by Mr. Bennett, which is a kind of a, a more, uh, on a, in a sense, a more right-wing party than the Likud party. Uh, also based with the settlers, but also having an open and sort of modern uh, look to it. Uh, this party has seven seats, um, uh, but uh, the leader, Mr. Bennett, said he would never join, he, he, he would not like to join, I shouldn't say never, but he would not like to join Mr. Netanyahu's party. Interestingly enough, 
and Mr. Netanyahu's wife, Sarah, hates both Mr. Bennett and his number two, Ayala Chaket. Ayala Chaket is a beautiful, probably the, the most beautiful woman in the Knesset. And I think that's the one reason that uh, Mrs. Netanyahu hates her. Um, so, and he, she doesn't want her in uh, Mr. Netanyahu's government. The other undecided is this Ram party, the, the Islamic one, with four seats. So if those, the, the seven and the four together make 11, so if you add 11 to either side, you add 11 to 52 or you add 11 to 57, they both make a government. However, of course, um, the two parties say they won't sit with each other. So, um, you know, that becomes the complication. <clears throat> that becomes the complication. Um, on the surface, it looks a little bit easier for Mr. Netanyahu to somehow assemble a government. But the way he would do it is um, to try to bribe um, members elected for other parties to come over to his government. Now, this is really a travesty of democracy when, unlike our system, the actual members of Knesset aren't elected directly by the population. They just vote for a party. The, the population just votes for a, a party. Now, why should it be allowed that once the elections are held and the, and the vote is counted and the party, uh, the uh, members elected are declared elected, in other words, say it's the first 10 on the list or the first six on the list or first seven on the list, these people just represent their parties. They're not elected directly. And yet they seem to be, they are not seen, they are allowed to change parties at will. And uh, Mr. Netanyahu has already made offers of the education ministry and, the, and the, some of the um, uh, money ministries to members of Mr. Sar's party saying, if you join, if you abandon Mr. Sar's party called New Hope and you join the Likud, I will make you this minister, I will make you that minister. I will give you this and I will give you that. So it, it's anti-democratic because um, uh, the voters for the New Hope Party specifically said, we don't want you to be part of Netanyahu's government. And the leader of the party, Mr. Sar, said he will never be part of Mr. Netanyahu's government. And so um, Israeli politics seems to allow this, this kind of sellout system. And they actually have a name for it in Israel. It's called Kalantarism. And that Kalantarism was named after a Mr. Kalantar, who in a city politics, municipal politics, changed sides after he was elected for one party, um, for the losing party, he went over to the winning party, and lo and behold, got a seat on the city council. So, um, you know, that's a, uh, a go-to uh, go system for... Uh, Mr. Netanyahu, you know, rather than compromise on ideas, he'll buy off um, opposition members. Um, so, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the way it looks. Uh, that's the way it looks. Um, Mr. Lieberman, another star in this election, uh, who represents a party representing the Russian voters of Israel, ran a uh, campaigns on a strictly very anti-Haredi platform, meaning that he doesn't want the religious people to dominate Israeli life. He wants to have public transportation on Shabbat. He wants to have uh, civil marriage in Israel. 
he wants to have non-orthodox conversions allowed. So the whole anti-Haredi anti uh, line, he proposed and worked very strongly to push. And uh, the result was he got the same number of seats as last time, but he pushed more Haredim to vote than uh, last time. So in other words, the Haredi party said, if you don't go out and vote, Mr. Lieberman will take over the government and, and, and he will, you know, push Israel into Sin and Sodom and Gomorrah. And, um, and they did turn out to vote. And on the other hand, Mr. Lieberman did not get this wave of support from non-Russian um, secularists. The, you know, these people, secularists voted for the Yeshatid party, number two party, or for the Labour party, or for the Merits party. And, um, uh, you know, that's the way the, that's the, way the, uh, the vote went, went, uh, went along. Um, um, the, uh, the, you know, the government has been accused, and rightly so, of favoring the Haredi in the whole COVID lockdown system. Uh, because um, the government, rather than rather than lock down only Haredi towns where the COVID was uh, was spreading fast, uh, he said, "Well, I don't want to punish one sector of society," so he locked down the whole country. And um, you know, uh, he was accused by Mr. Lieberman of playing favorites with the Haredim, which he was. Um, the uh, uh, you know the so so you know Mr. Netanyahu has has in a way many choices of how to form a government, but each one of them is blocked either by personal animosity between the leaders of that party and Mr. Netanyahu, number one, or because of animosity between potential um, potential partners in the government for each other. So in other words, the religious, the Orthodox say, we will never have agreed to sit with Mr. Lieberman. And Mr. Lieberman says, I'll never agree to sit with the Orthodox. So he's out of the question. Mr. Bennett uh, is kind of uh, very distrustful of Netanyahu. And the only, um, the only way that anybody would trust Mr. Netanyahu nowadays is if that person was made prime minister first because last time Mr. Netanyahu reneged on his, um, you know, agreement with Mr. Gantz. Uh, so uh, we have an interesting few weeks in Israeli politics to see who is going to come up with what. And a lot of promises, a lot of threats, um, and a lot of insults and a lot of uh, compliments are going to be made over the time. It's so interesting how, for example, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, before said, I will never have a government with Arabs in it, um, you know, after the election says, well, you know, we have to look at all possibilities to maintain the stability in the country. So you can, you can take it from there. Let's put it like that. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, more to come on that subject. Um, I just also wanted to mention, of course, as you all know, that, uh, you know, there was uh, not just 10 plagues in Egypt, but the 11th plague, uh, which was that ship getting caught in the Suez Canal, uh, which is now freed. Uh, what is so interesting about this, uh, this, um, uh, uh, this blockage of the canal is how it affects world trade, you know, worldwide. 
And uh, if you sort of take take a few steps downward, you you had um, you know more than three hundred ships caught in the canal not moving. So that means that all the goods that they were supposed to deliver didn't get delivered. So that means that there's this, because of this sort of just-in-time system of stocking um, uh, warehouses and stores and factories, uh, many of these stores and factories ran out of what they're supposed to be selling or using. And now that all the ships are all freed all at one time, what's going to happen is, is that in the European ports, there won't be any space for these ships to, to dock because they're all docking all at the same time. And they can't. So that's going to lead to further delays. Um, another interesting fact is that these ships carry containers. And these containers are mostly uh, full, only going in one direction, meaning, let's say, going from the Far East to Europe. So what happens to these containers once they get emptied out is that they have to be brought back empty through the Suez Canal back to the Far East. Now, because all those containers have been held up, waiting in the Suez Canal, all the exporters in the Far East have all the goods on the docks, but no containers to put them in. So it means that until those containers are empty ones arrive, there's a delay again in getting all that stuff onto containers and back in circulation to, to Europe. So, uh, you know, this is just a kind of a uh, goes to show, in, a, in other words, these vulnerable choke points in world uh, trade um, uh, are very important. And, you know, to this very day, most goods traded in the world come by ship. So um, the blockage of the Suez Canal, just as the blockage of the Straits of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, or the blockage of the Straits of Malacca in, um, in um, Malaysia, uh, these are sort of choke points in world trade. And if these places ever get blocked, then the entire world will get disrupted. Uh, the oil prices rose uh, because of the um, blockage and they fell, you know, once the blockage uh, was unblocked. So, you know, a lot of things respond to what happens in one single place. Uh, just to mention to you again that, um, not again, but to mention that the world experts in ship handling, in ship problem solving, are the Dutch. Uh, they have the world's largest tugboats. They have the most experienced people. Um, you know, they're dealing with shipping all the time, going in and out of ports, uh, dealing with the North Atlantic, where ships uh, can sometimes get, you know, stuck or damaged. And so uh, it wasn't until the Dutch arrived that, the, um, the ship got itself unblocked uh, from the Suez Canal. Um, okay, so now I'm going to go, let me just check my time for a sec. Here we are. Okay, not, not too bad. Uh, you know what, maybe uh, maybe I'll see if you've got any comments or questions about about the um, anything I've said so far, especially about the Israeli elections before I change subjects to Brazil. That way we can sort of keep one one. One, uh, one train of thought in a sense. So uh, Angela, see if you've got any comments, questions, and then I'll go on from there. I don't see anything yet, uh, Mr. Dwoskin. Do you wanna wait a minute or two? Or yeah, just, just, yeah, just a couple of seconds. I'll take a drink of water.
Um, okay, so now let's change gears, get our minds set on something completely different, and uh, learn a little bit about uh, Brazil. Uh, it's unique in so many different ways. Um, it's a country which, uh, since its founding uh, in the 1820s, has been the largest physical country in South America, the largest country in South America by population, um, the largest Portuguese-speaking country in the world, um, and uh, a kind of an anchor, you could say, of the whole continent. It's also the drain of the whole continent because the Amazon River uh, spends almost all of its time in Brazil making its way from the Andes Mountains where it rises all the way into the Atlantic Ocean where it empties out. And speaking of the Amazon River, it's the world's largest river in terms of volume. The uh, amount of water that pours out of that river into the ocean is so great that hundred and I think 150 miles from the coast in the ocean uh, fresh water, uh, mu fresh muddy water from the Amazon can be seen. So it gives you an idea of how much, how much water uh, the Amazon holds and how much pours out into the ocean. But unlike many other rivers, also what's so interesting about that river is that from the time it sort of gets settled down as a river, the drop to the ocean from uh, 2,800 miles inland is only 400 feet. So in other words, this is not a uh, kind of a river which flows quickly. It's a kind of a river which uh, is massive in size and volume, but the amount of, uh, of drop is, uh, is very small. So there's not very many sort of waterfalls on there. There's not much chance for a hydroelectric uh, generation on there on that. Some of the tributaries maybe, but not on the river, Amazon River itself. Um, so Brazil, as I said, is in the news because they've had 312,000 deaths in, of COVID at least, probably way more. But remember to compare the US has had 550,000 with uh, a third more population. So you know, they, the, the rate of deaths is roughly equal to the United States, roughly. Uh, but they've had 25% of all the deaths in the whole world in the last two weeks, and all the figures are going up. They're going up so quickly that uh, most of the country, maybe not most, but at least half of the country, the ICU beds are at capacity. So there's no more room to put people who are sick in. And of course, that makes for horrible conditions uh, for people who don't have COVID, but who have other emergencies, uh, it jams up and gums up the whole system. And uh, because of that reason, and because of the sort of failure of the government to deal with it, uh, today, uh, two big ministers resigned. And uh, the criticism of uh, the president, Mr. Bolsonaro, is such that uh, there have been calls for his impeachment. 
So uh, Brazil is really going through a crisis right now. They haven't vaccinated. They've begun a bit of vaccination. I think they're about 5%, but not a, not a whole lot on that score. Because, you know, like most of the non-wealthy countries, they were not able to purchase uh, vaccines beforehand and to put big deposits down. And now they have to play catch up with the rest of the world trying to get doses of vaccine. So, um, you know, that's the kind of situation. Uh, the crematoriums and cemeteries are already uh, booked solid. They can't handle any more people. And um, the president has uh, done the Donald Trump uh, response to the COVID saying, it's not serious, it's not important, ignore it, get on with your life. Um, you know, uh, don't let COVID get the best of you. We're not closing down the country. We're not closing down the economy. To close down the economy would be worse than having people die. So, you know, that's been his response. And, um, you know, he himself got COVID and recovered. So he figures that, uh, you know, if, you know, uh, that, um, you know, the, the tough guy approach is really the best. But, uh, you know, if the whole system, the health system collapses, uh, he'll be, which it is happening now, um, you know, he'll have to answer for it. Um, Brazil, uh, like the rest of South America, in a sense, is an underachiever compared to its potential. And uh, the advantages that Brazil has, which are a huge territory, a fertile uh, soil, uh, excellent location in, um, in uh, South America, um, a uh, population which is uh, not the poorest in the world, uh, not the least educated in the world, um, it has a kind of a unity in the sense of no real um, ethnic divisions. Uh, there are religious differences, but they are not important differences. Uh, they haven't fought any serious wars uh, really since the mid-1800s. Um, uh, the, the, you know, there are divided sort of in a way by race in the country, but these divisions are really quite fluid. Um, and it's the fifth largest country by size in the world and the sixth in population in the world. But it has 211 million people and it's the largest Catholic country in the world. So when you consider sort of the building blocks of the country, when you consider the the, the status of um, of the country, uh, you would expect more from uh, the country in terms of um, economic development, in terms of uh, other so sort of social and intellectual developments. Uh, you, you know, if Brazil were to be, let, let's say, located in Europe, with the European, um, with the European, uh, we'll say, um, uh, infrastructures, uh, you know, it would be the leading country in Europe. And uh, if Brazil was somehow put in North America, it would be, you know, with the same kind of North American 
data and facts, you know, it would be like like a kind of United States. But uh, it, it has not, as I say, you know, it has not really gone as near nearly as far as it can go. So the word Brazil, where it comes from, is actually from the wood called Brazil wood. And uh, some of you know what that wood is. It's a kind of a red, very reddish hard wood, which um, the first Europeans were uh, after because of the dye that could be made from that wood. And, you know, so, you know, the word Brazil is related in English to, you know, brazen and brazier and, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of reddish, um, reddish uh, look to it. Um, before the Europeans arrived, there were uh, indigenous people living there at least 11,000 years ago, uh, because that's where they found remains of them. And it's estimated that somewhere around 7 million uh, indigenous people lived there before the Europeans arrived. The Europeans arrived in 1500, the Portuguese. Portuguese uh, began colonization uh, shortly after. Uh, it was the Pope who divided South America between Brazil, uh, Portugal and Brazil. Uh, sorry, between Portugal and Spain. Um, and the way he did it was he kind of, I mean, they had no clue where things were in those days. It was really interesting. You know, they had maps, but the maps were not in any way uh, accurate. Um, the Pope drew a line, uh, a north to south line, and said everything to the east of this line is going to be for Portugal, and everything to the west is going to be for Spain. Portugal was the first country kind of off the mark um, of exploration by going down, following the coast of Africa, um, down uh, the coast of West Africa, and then jumping across to Brazil was relatively not as far as going from, let's say, France to America or from uh, England to the US. So it was a much closer sort of hop. That's that's one thing. Also, you know, for those of you who are interested in kind of geography, if you look at the way Brazil sticks out into the ocean, and if you look at the way Africa bends at the same latitude, you, you can pretty make a, you can make a very good guess that at one time Brazil and Africa were all together in one continent, which is exactly what they were. And, uh, you know, they found rocks, sort of uh, the same kind of rocks in one place as where if you fit if you fit if you fit this sort of bump of Brazil into the hollow of Africa and you go look you know at where the two might have met you find the same uh, rocks are in both places so we know that the two split apart the Atlantic Ocean kind of formed and and um, you know the continents drifted apart from each other um, so Portugal uh, uh, took hold of Brazil and Spain got the rest of Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's how the division went. And, and to this very day now, uh, 500 years later, um, the rest of Latin America is Spanish speaking and um, Brazil is Portuguese speaking. Um, uh, the, uh, the first uh, big uh, economic use of Brazil was to produce sugar. And, you know, some of you who know the history of sugar know that in its day, it was almost as valuable as gold. It was, uh, it had an enormous value. 
and um, it needed to be uh, grown in uh, hot, moist climates, uh, which, uh, you know, Europe is not uh, good for that. It's either not moist enough or not hot enough. And, uh, you know, Brazil is perfect for that. In order to grow sugar, you need a lot of labor in those days, especially to plant it and to cut it. Uh, the Indian people in Brazil, as, as the natives in the rest of the Americas, uh, refused to work for the um, Spanish or the uh, Portuguese. Uh, and they were either killed by force or they were decimated by plague or they ran off into the jungle. And the Brazilians then imported slaves from Africa into Brazil to work. Portugal already had good contacts in Africa. It had established colonies in uh, West Africa, also in Angola. But they took slaves from all over the place in Western Africa and brought them to Brazil. It's estimated that they brought four, three million slaves from 1500 to 1800 to Brazil to work uh, in the sugar uh, industry. Um, gold was discovered in Brazil and that pushed the Brazilian boundary over uh, up the Amazon uh, to the west. Uh, for a very brief time, the Dutch uh, conquered um, the Portuguese territories in Brazil. And uh, when that happened, and of course, interestingly enough, uh, Jews followed the Dutch and settled in Brazil. Uh, but in 1654, the uh, Portuguese took back Brazil. And because, of course, the Inquisition was still in force, uh, the Jews in 1654 had to leave Brazil very quickly. And they went to the Dutch colonies in uh, the Caribbean, in Curaçao. Uh, but there wasn't enough room for everybody, so they went from Curaçao to the next colony of Holland in America, which was New Amsterdam. And so it's not a coincidence that Jews arrived in New York City, New Amsterdam, in 1654, at the very same year that the Portuguese uh, reconquered Brazil from the Dutch. Um, during the Napoleonic times, um, Spain and France ganged up against Portugal because uh, France had conquered Spain. And um, the, what the Portuguese did was it moved the uh, royal family to Brazil because they didn't want the royal family to be captured by the French and they moved the royal family to Brazil. When the war ended, uh, the queen wanted to stay there um, and formed a United Kingdom of Brazil and Portugal. Uh, however, however, uh, in, in the early 1820s, uh, the, she was forced to return to Portugal to deal with a rebellion. And when that happened, um, uh, uh, Portugal tried to remake Brazil into a colony again. And uh, of course they refused and this led to a declaration of independence in 1822. Uh, but a declaration of independence, not, not a declaration of independence um, directly uh, from the ruling family, but a, direct, uh, the, uh, a declaration of independence, meaning that Portugal would not rule Brazil anymore as a colony. And so Brazil was established as a monarchy, interestingly enough, as a monarchy under uh, Prince Pedro, 
who is a member of the royal family, the same royal family of Portugal that ruled Portugal. And uh, Portugal recognized this independence in 1825. And, you know, interestingly enough, this royal family lasted in Brazil from 1825 to 1889. So, you know, for most of the 19th century, Brazil was ruled by a monarch, unlike, you know, the rest of, um, certainly the rest of, uh, uh, most of the rest of South America and the Caribbean and the U.S. Uh, only Canada, you know, still had a monarch in the 1800s. Uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico belonged to Spain, so that was under a monarchy for some of the 1800s. And Brazil was, uh, had their own monarch, their own king till 1889. Um, uh, uh, <coughs> slavery, the, the, um, the institution of slavery lasted in Brazil until 1888. So they were the very last country to outlaw slavery. Remember in the United States, the civil war outlawed slavery in 1865. In, uh, I think 1834, the British empire outlawed slavery uh, in all its uh, domain. So it lasted in Brazil really until uh, the very end almost of the 19th century. Um, the monarchy was overthrown actually one year after slavery was abolished and a military dictatorship was set up. Um, and then uh, Brazil kind of alternated between democracies and military dictatorships uh, pretty well up until these days uh, now. Um, Brazil uh, entered the Second World War on the Allied side. They sent a few troops to Italy. Um, they had a president, Mr. Vargas, Getulio Vargas, from, uh, for quite a long time in the, in the 1930s and 1945. Um, uh, Brazil received many immigrants like Argentina did and like Canada did and like the Americas did, you know, starting from uh, the uh, end of the 1800s, um, certainly up until the Second World War. Uh, you know, when, when immigration was closed to, in North America, uh, European immigrants, especially, say, from, from um, uh, Italy, uh, Germany, Portugal, um, France, uh, went to Brazil to live and, you know, make their lives. And so to this day, um, you know, these uh, ethnic groups are, are strong and prominent in Brazilian life. And um, also Jewish community went there from, from at the same time, you know, pre-First World War from Poland and Russia, uh, made their way to Brazil and, um, you know, got themselves established in that way. And then after the First World War, the, um, you know, uh, immigration continued uh, from uh, from Europe and Poland uh, until uh, until the Second World War. Um, very interestingly enough, very interesting. In, in 1960, they decided to move the capital city. So uh, you know that's always a big a big job. Uh, the capital city was Rio de Janeiro in um, in on the coast of uh, Brazil. And the, the president uh, felt that uh, the coast 
meaning the two large cities of Rio and Sao Paulo were, were full. And uh, the interior of Brazil was relatively unpopulated and he wanted to move the capital and build a new brand new capital from scratch out of the jungle in Brasilia. And, you know, like all projects, uh, things go wrong at first. And in the end, uh, you know, the, the project is, is put through at a much greater expense than, than expected. But Brasilia is today the capital and, and has been recognized as the capital for since 1960. And it's a city, a uh, modern city, because it only started in 1960. There was nothing there before. And um, they wanted to spread out the population. Brazil had a particularly vicious uh, military government in the 60s and 70s, committed all kinds of you know, human rights abuses. Um, uh, and you know, this, all of this led to e uh, you know, economic instability, corruption, police getting involved in, in all kinds of problems. And, um, and there was an election. You know, when, once military governments fail, and they have no further excuses to stay in power, they usually kind of go quietly and say, well, you know, we've rescued the country, now let's have democracy, uh, because they don't want to take responsibilities for their failures. And usually that's what's happened. Certainly in South America, we've seen this record play over and over again. In 2002, uh, this charismatic uh, man of the people, Lula da Silva, was elected as president. And uh, he, um, he ran a kind of a social democratic kind of administration or kind of a, some would say socialist administration. What he did that was very interesting was that rather than give money uh, out to poor people with expecting nothing in return, he made giving money to poor people conditional on the poor people sending their kids to school and getting their kids vaccinated. And he used the schools as a kind of um, social education system to um, not only you know, teach the subjects, but to teach uh, children how to be citizens and how to be, um, uh, you know, how to take part in society. Um, there has always been a fight in Brazil between preserving the Amazon rainforest, which is the largest rainforest in the world and kind of called the lungs of the world in a sense uh, between them and on the other side between industrial farmers who um, want to clear the Amazon to either grow soybeans or cattle and um, because the state is not that strong and they can't have eyes everywhere and even if they have eyes they don't have uh, you know uh, police everywhere uh, and, and corruption is such a, a fast, strong facet of Brazilian life that uh, over time, the Amazon has been uh, shrinking. The rainforest, the original rainforest has been shrinking. And uh, some people are saying that this might cause uh, severe disruption in the climate because of it. But that is a fact of life, even though there are attempts uh, to stop it uh, this only sort of grow, goes in one direction. So uh, you never have the Amazon retaking over lands that have been cleared. You might have a standstill in clearage of lands and then for a short period of time, they start over again. And so um, this is a hallmark of Brazilian life in a certain sense. Um, one other thing that Mr. De Silva did in order to protect the, um, 
the rainforest is to give recognition to the indigenous tribes living there and to give these tribes some power and some say in how their territory would be uh, either developed or not developed. Um, there are still some indigenous people in Brazil who uh, a few pockets here and there who never had contact with, um, with um, we'll call it the Western life. Certainly there are pockets continually in Peru and Ecuador who are like that. So these are contiguous places to Brazil. And um, these in a certain sense, people on earth who um, are completely shut off from the rest of the world. And, um, you know, that kind of government, Mr. De Silva's government gave these people those kind of protections. Um, Brazil, uh, uh, so Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Lula was elected twice and um, uh, he uh, left power in a scandal. And this was a, one of the world's biggest scandals it's called the, the uh, it's a scandal dealing with um, uh, Petrobras, which is the Brazilian oil company and Odebrecht, which is the Brazilian engineering company who paid bribes uh, apparently all over the Latin America to get contracts. And uh, Mr. Lula was caught up in one of these, uh, one of these affairs, claimed his innocence, but it was put in jail anyway and was just released just recently. And, um, you know, uh, I saw him on TV this year and he said that he's interested in running again for office. So we'll see what happens in that, in that, uh, in that area. Mr. Bolsonaro was elected in 2018, so two years ago. One of Trump's best friends, uh, a mini Trump, we'll call him a mini Trump, uh, does not believe in sort of the democratic niceties, um, He's willing to shut down, you know, newspapers and radio stations who don't like him. Um, he's a COVID denier, uh, an abuser of the courts and the court process. And his son is also a politician. So uh, his son wants to, in a way, continue the dynasty of the Bolsonaros in the future. Um, it remains to be seen, of course, uh, you know, even Mr. Trump was tossed out of office. Uh, Mr. Mr. Bolsonaro, unlike Mr. Trump, does not have control of the Congress and has to rely on a sort of a, a coalition of parties of the right which back him. But these parties can sort of turn their heads in, into another direction pretty quickly. So this COVID crisis is one which um, is going to uh, either uh, sink Mr. Bolsonaro or uh, if he's able to overcome it, he'll be able to last for a lot longer in politics. Um, just a few uh, words now about Brazil itself and the structure and everything. Let me just see what we got here. Just excuse me one second. I want to just turn my air conditioning off. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. It's uh, it's close to 80 outside, but I don't like the sound of the air conditioning. So Brazil is a federation of 26 states plus a federal district. Uh, as I said, the population is 212 million people. It's the largest Roman Catholic country by far in the world. 
Um, the um, income uh, per person is $6,500 US nominally, or in purchasing power, it's about $15,000 uh, a year per person. So it's not poor, 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 poor. It's not certainly far from wealthy. It's the ninth largest economy in the world uh, and the eighth largest at PPP. Now, what Brazil is known for is coffee. So for the last 150 years, Brazil is the largest producer of coffee in the world. And um, it's a producer especially of uh, bulk coffee. In other words, not the uh, finest quality shade mountain-grown coffee because uh, they, they, they are the ones who produce coffee for for um, you know Maxwell House Nescafe and uh, and uh, you know all the very much basic coffees and they've been doing this as I said for 150 years although coffee um, that never grew in Brazil to start with it comes from Africa that's where it originates from or possibly Yemen but certainly Yemen or Ethiopia is where coffee came from but it was brought to Brazil by the Portuguese and succeeded very well. It also is a huge producer of soybeans, iron ore, uh, corn, beef, chicken, sugar, cotton, tobacco, orange juice, uh, shoes, airplanes, uh, ethanol, uh, gold, and timber. So all of these things that I mentioned, are, Brazil is one of the leading producers in the world of all those things. Um, Certainly, the, uh, if you buy a hamburger at McDonald's in, in the U.S., uh, it's half likely that that beef comes from Brazil. If you buy orange juice in the U.S., uh, you have to look very carefully. It might, it might say Florida in big letters on the front of the orange juice, but then you look on the very bottom of ingredients and it says uh, orange juice product of uh, Florida and Brazil. So very often it'll say those things. Because they have so much land, because labor is cheap, because transportation is good, because their ports are good, they are a tremendous producer of these um, bulk goods. Uh, when China boycotted the, the U.S. soybean um, imports, Brazil jumped right in and uh, started exporting uh, to, um, to China via the Panama Canal. And, uh, you know, soybeans are a key ingredient in not only food, like tofu, but for feed for animals, chickens, pigs, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, they're the third largest, uh, second largest beef producer in the whole world after the U.S., the third largest milk producer, the fourth largest pork producer, the se seventh largest egg producer. Um, in, in iron ore mining, they're the second biggest exporter in the world. If I'm not mistaken, Australia is the first one. Uh, they also are known for gems, you know, amethyst, topaz. They are the biggest producer of those things in the world. If ever you are, you know, your kids are rock collectors and they like those geodes, you know, the kind of rock that looks like a round thing on the outside and open it up inside are all those purple colored crystals. All that comes from Brazil. Um, they also have a big shoe industry, the fourth biggest in the world paper industry, chemicals industry, textiles, making cars, and not last, uh, least but not last, you know, airplanes. They're, 
Embraer uh, plane was a big challenge, big uh, challenger to the challenger. Uh, our Bombardier's biggest competition in that hundred seat aircraft was Embraer of Brazil, uh, and uh, Bombardier definitely came out second place in that uh, contest. That's for sure. Um, but corruption, unlike here, corruption is really a big factor in Brazil. And corruption is a kind of like rust. It kind of, it, it, it kind of if, if you have to pay people off in different levels of business and society, it costs you so much more to do business in Brazil than it would someplace else uh, because of corruption. Um, and uh, the value of the Brazilian money is down 25% in 2020 over the US dollar. It's the second worst of all major countries in the world. And the US dollar is down against all major countries in the world also. So the US dollar is down against the Euro, against the Yen, against the Chinese money, and even against the Canadian dollar. So that means that Brazilian money is down even further against all those major currencies um, as a result of the kind of poor economic performance. Uh, in case you're interested, the, the worst country for that of the major countries is Argentina, which is Brazil's neighbor. Uh, you know, in a way, in some ways, even worse off than they are in some ways. Uh, in energy, Brazil is the biggest, uh, has the largest hydro dam in the world, the Taipu Falls. Um, and also they, they have, were the pioneer in producing ethanol, which is a fuel produced from sugarcane. Um, and uh, that fuel replaces gasoline. So that means that their cars in uh, Brazil run on ethanol. You can uh, fill up your car with ethanol and uh, it's a kind of a, in some ways more environmentally friendly because it does not use uh, oil uh, or refined oil to make gasoline out of, but it uses, um, it uses a sugar cane to make it. And, uh, they also generate electricity from burning the waste of the sugar uh, cane, you know, the, all the leaves, uh, the stalks and all that. Uh, uh, you know, they burn it for, for electricity generation as well. Uh, and they're also uh, the eighth largest wind producing country in the world. So that's, you know, a, a few notes about that. Another interesting things about Brazil, as we all know, is that it's a very racially mixed country. You know, the people... Are, 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 uh, I was surprised to read that 48% of the people consider themselves white, and I find that kind of a bit, uh, let's say, not so truthful. Um, and about 43% are mixed, and about 8% are black. Less than 1% are uh, indigenous. Uh, but color does not matter very much in Brazilian society except for Blacks. Blacks do feel as if they are on the bottom of the uh, social scale. Uh, blacks are also the poorest in the country. Uh, the Blacks live in the northeast of the country, which is the poorest part of the country. That's where all the sugar was grown. That's where the Portuguese first settled. Um, but social class, in other words, wealth, is a bigger sort of a, a producer of standing in society than the skin color. And there's much, much, you know, sort of blends and mixes and mulattoes and things like that in Brazil. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the country, uh, as I said, certainly in this century has achieved uh, basic health and basic literacy. 
and, uh, and the sort of social welfare system has raised the uh, people out of poverty or out of destitution by a huge amount, because at one point, uh, Brazil was really a destitute country. And today it's kind of moved up to that sort of lower middle classification. So um, that's about it. Let me check. Yeah, yeah, we're, time is up. Um, so I'm now ready to um, have you comment or question about this or anything else um, that might be of interest to you. Um, um, you know, a word about crime in Brazil. There certainly is uh, some, uh, you know, gangs, uh, there's drugs. Uh, but it's not something that has, in a way, uh, taken over society to stop it from functioning, as has happened in, um, you know, some of the uh, Central American countries like uh, El Salvador or Honduras. But it's, a, it, you know, it's definitely a worry. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of drug gangs uh, do control some of the what they call favelas or slum shanty towns in on the edges of the big cities and there's constant gun battles with police over control of uh, territory and things like that so you know that's it uh let me know what you think let me know if you've been to brazil if you if you uh, know the country um you know i'd love to hear from you uh by this question is by boris yeah saying Mr. B. Netanyahu has some legal problems. How this can change the results of the Israel election? Okay, so um, Mr. Netanyahu is facing three criminal cases. Um, the criminal cases are ones which certainly in many other democracies would not be considered serious. Let's start, we'll start with that. Uh, his cr three criminal cases involve receiving gifts from foreigners, which is not allowed, case number one. Case number two, indirectly receiving a bribe for giving a contract for Israeli submarines to a German company. Case number three, to, um, uh, to uh, reward a media company, like a newspaper, for favorable coverage of himself. So those are the three criminal cases he's facing. He's delayed them uh, masterfully by his lawyers through a combination of questioning the jurisdiction of Israel, uh, appealing the time um, you know, for the hearings, claiming that he's too busy being a prime minister to face justice, um, questioning the jurisdiction of the attorney general to have these cases, He's thrown the book at the three cases. Uh, in short, the attorney general who was appointed by him, the chief of police who was appointed by him, have refused to dismiss the cases and um, have always agreed for postponements. And um, the, the, the court has finally said, you know, our patience is up and, and he has to face justice at some point. All the Israeli people know about this. So they all voted how they voted, you know, whether, you know, um, knowing about these cases. Um, his supporters feel this is kind of, uh, we'll call it uh, political revenge on this Mr. Netanyahu because 
They can't get at him any other way. And his opponents say that Mr. Netanyahu thinks he's above the law and can do whatever he wants. So, um, you know, that, that, that's the background of these criminal cases. Uh, his wife pled guilty to misusing state funds. Um, uh, and and there have been so many other actions by N Mr. Netanyahu, which are, we'll call it borderline uh, corruption, uh, whether it's using state funds, using state airplanes uh, for private purposes, um, uh, you know, uh, Lots of other sort of similar similar uh, actions, um, you know, uh, him and his wife uh, are, uh, you know, uh, quite wealthy, but not multi-billionaires. Um, he could have been, he could have been a multi-millionaire because he uh, graduated from a university in Massachusetts, MIT. Um, he could have gone on to work for, uh, I think it's Bain Capital or Boston Consulting Group, one of the two. Um, he could have made his life in the U.S. Uh, because his father was a professor there. Um, but he chose to go back to Israel to go into the army and serve his uh, time there and to go into the elite forces where his brother was and where his brother was killed in Entebbe in the attempted rescue of the hostages uh, from uh, um, an El Al plane. Um, and, um, you know, uh, his opponents feel that he confuses himself with the state. Um, you know, that, that, you know, what's good for Mr. Netanyahu is good for Israel and vice versa. Um, and, um, you know, all of his legal problems are something that are out in the open. Whereas uh, Trump, for example, uh, you know, his legal problems haven't even gotten started yet. You know, his income tax, his taxes, his, his attacking women and all those type of things. They're all coming up now uh, once he's not president. So, uh, you know, that's the, um, uh, you know, that's the legal cases. And, and um, you know, some people are saying, well, that he is he is offering um, uh, jobs in the in the uh, government on condition that the people sort of stop his legal cases, and he says, "No, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm I have nothing to hide. I'm I'm willing and ready to um, you know to face justice." Except, of course, he's not, or his lawyers keep postponing things. So, uh, you know, that's that's the question of his legal cases. He's got three. I think they're called case one thousand, case two thousand, and case four thousand. I don't know what happened to case 3000, but that, those are what the names of the cases. Uh, we're in for a, by the way, you know, don't expect, people should not expect that a government in Israel should be formed uh, next week. Um, there is uh, a one month statutory uh, time to form a government. And then if a government can't be formed in a month, the uh, the prime minister, the sitting prime minister, who's Netanyahu, can ask the president for an extension, at least a two week extension. So six weeks is the bare minimum that you could expect to wait from the election to have a government in Israel. That would be completely normal. How things carry on in the meantime is sort of uh, you know a mystery that we all would like to know because there's no real effective government in the meantime. Yeah, anyone else? I don't see any more questions. Um, 
do you have any words of wisdom or any last word? Uh, yes, I, I actually would like to go back to COVID again for a second and to point out to people that if you look at where in the U.S. today the rates of COVID are the highest, they're in the northeast part of the country. So meaning New York, uh, uh, New Jersey, uh, Rhode Island. And if you look at the rate of vaccinations, although the country is relatively, relatively um, uh, equal in vaccinations, the Northeast are actually a little bit ahead of the average. So you would think that a sort of one third of the people have been vaccinated. So why is it that the Northeast have had uh, sort of more cases than the rest of the country? And uh, that is proof, not that the vaccinations don't work, but that if you add the number of people who've had COVID to the number of people who've been vaccinated, you get at the kind of a, a guesstimation, sort of on average in the US, it's roughly 10% of the people have had COVID. Now, if you double that to people who have, who, who've had it but are, aren't declared or you know, didn't know they had it, that comes to 20%. If you take that 20% and you add it to the 30% who've been vaccinated in the Northeast, you get 50%. So even 50% is not enough to stop transmission of the disease, especially the new variants are far more um, uh, infectious than the old ones. And uh, the experts are saying you need 70% at least to uh, 90% to um, stop the spread of COVID. And so the US, uh, you know, let's say at 50%, uh, vaccination plus people who've been ill are not close enough yet. And uh, it, it's a warning to us, a warning to Canadians not to, uh, in a way, get too, um, too uh, comfortable with the idea that the end is around the corner. Uh, we are now only at about 12% uh, have received vaccinations. And we are in total infections or rating only around 5% of the country has had COVID. So sort of double the five to make 10. And so you're at uh, 22% or 25% have some protection against this disease. And that leaves 75% who don't have any protection. So, um, you know, that gives you the sort of, uh, you know, it's a guesstimation, of course. But it's a rough, uh, pretty good estimate of where things are at this point. And the rising toll of COVID numbers in the States, and the rising toll of COVID numbers of Canada tell us that even despite the vaccinations going and going at a good rate, uh, we're not out of the woods yet. So, um, you know, let's try to be careful and be safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, by, by uh, we're now in... Uh, we'll call it April. So by September, I think the picture will be all different. So I want to wish everybody a happy Passover, happy Easter, and um, we'll see you all next week. And thank you, Angela, for hosting. And um, we'll, uh, I'll see you all again next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. 
and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit CodeStLuke.org. Have a great day.